Hello, in these two lectures, we will look at sex, reproduction, and marriage, and examine how humans' biological needs and potentials are realized in culturally specific ways. Some of the specific things we'll look at include how do culture and reproductive tendencies interact? How does culture affect fertility? We'll also look at sex and sexuality. Comparing human sex patterns to animal sex patterns gives us an understanding of some of the unique aspects of human sexual behavior. And we will look at marriage, placing it in the broad context of human universals and its relationship to similar patterns of behavior that we find in animals that are called pair bonding. We'll see that these universal features of human life reflect some of the same basic aspects of adaptation that lead other animals to engage in pair bonding. We'll see that while human reproduction may be driven by biology, the ways in which humans organize their lives are very culturally specific and are always regulated by a variety of cultural rules. We'll look at these marriage rules, beginning with principles of endogamy, in-group marriage, and exogamy, out-group marriage, and look at how some human universals, or alleged universals, such as the incest taboo, provide certain kinds of adaptive functions in human culture. And we will look at some of the basic ways in which men and women unite to form marriages and look at some of the primary combinations represented in the concepts of monogamy, polygamy, as well as concepts of group and same-sex marriages. Reproduction is a biological necessity for continuation of the species. And to understand what is uniquely human about reproduction, we need to look at it in the context of the behavior of other mammals and primates. One of the things that has been noted about virtually all other animals is that sexual behavior is linked to estrus, when the female is basically ready to be pregnant and becomes sexually available to the male members of her species. Male and female animals in the mammalian and primate orders have very different tendencies. Males are, in essence, always ready. Whenever a female is available, they're ready to perform. Females, on the other hand, are generally only receptive when they are in heat or estrus. While there are a few examples that suggest counter uh, tendencies at times, this is some of the basic sex biases that exist in the animal species. And later we will look at some of the reasons why evolution has selected for these differences in male and female behavior. When we look at human modes of reproduction, they're quite different, and they're not dependent upon female biology alone. Some of the major cross-cultural patterns of reproduction differ across the foragers, agriculturalists, and in industrial societies. In foragers, births tend to be spaced out every four or five years and a variety of cultural practices, including postpartum sexual taboos, are used to assure that women do not get pregnant again. This is one of the fundamental adaptations of hunter-gatherer societies to help assure the survival of the newborn, a long-term commitment of the mother to a single offspring. Agriculturalists, on the other hand, have what has been called a pronatal orientation, a high value placed upon children in particular because of their value in agricultural labor. And what we see in these agricultural societies is an almost near continuous pregnancy or lactation on the part of females during their reproductive years. 
In industrial societies, we see a shift from this pronatal pattern. It begins with a decline in deaths and is followed by a decline in birth rates. So we see first the growth spurt caused by the decline in death rates, but then ultimately a leveling out and even a potential decline in the population as a new level of reproduction stabilizes population at a constant level. Culture affects reproduction in a variety of different ways. Clearly, the impulse to sexual behavior has a biological basis. But for the most part, human sexual tendencies are highly constrained by cultural expectations, beginning with questions about when is it normal for a human being to begin to have sex? Is this in childhood or adolescence or only in adulthood? Does it depend upon marriage or does sex become a regular part of negotiating marriage? There are many different ways in which culture has direct and indirect effects upon the control of birth. It can be affected by such diverse factors as nutrition, family structure, economic orientations, and cultural values. Diet plays an important role in terms of reproduction. Uh, with low protein and low fat in the diet, females don't become um, basically ready to reproduce. Their bodies don't go into ovulation. Uh, work can affect how a culture shapes the reproductive strategies of its groups. For instance, we've noted in the United States how women's entering the workforce has led to dramatic curtailments in reproduction. We also know that a variety of moral concepts can play a role. If sex is viewed as something that's restricted to marriage alone, this is a real impediment to uh, teenage pregnancy uh, in many cultures and may in fact lead to reduced early birth rates. Laws may restrict reproduction in certain ways and medications, birth control, certainly that a variety of impacts upon reproduction in our own society. On the other hand, things such as gender role values can motivate pregnancy. Are you not really a woman until you've had a baby? Are you not really a man until you've had several children? These kinds of value orientations can motivate early pregnancy in large families. Uh, again, the desire for large families is driven in many cases by the value of children, either as a workforce or as a kind of social security in the parent's old age. Uh, the demographic transition that occurs with the shift to urban lifestyle is another cross-cultural pattern that begins to limit pregnancy. So directly or indirectly, all cultures affect birth and exert some kind of control over fertility. In some cases, practices such as abortion or infanticide are major tools for the control of unwanted pregnancies. In other cultures, a much more passive approach may be taken, one in which the effects of work, of diet, and other value orientations may be the primary determinants of when a woman becomes pregnant. But irrespective of the culture, in no cultural group is pregnancy left up to the individual inclinations alone. In every culture, there are expectations about when it is appropriate for a female to become pregnant. And these play a very important role in restricting the extent to which fertility occurs early or later in life outside of marriage or only within the marriage arrangement. So culture has a major impact upon the growth of a population. 
reproduction patterns are affected by sex ratios, by the age of the population, by their overall health. And these kinds of factors have played an important role in the United States in terms of relationships among different ethnic groups. Today, we recognize that differential reproduction patterns are having a major impact upon the future ethnic composition of our society. We don't always recognize that this also occurred in the past. For instance, Native Americans, when they were invaded by Europeans, underwent a variety of virgin soil epidemics in which new diseases entered into their ecosystems and caused major population declines. Native American population patterns tended to be more of the forager type, spacing children out five years or more. Whereas the Europeans came in and, as the Indians sometimes said, they bred like rabbits, women having children every 12 to 15 months. This was part of a major growth cycle of the European immigrants and contributed in part to their ultimate dominance. Of course, by the time that United States industrialized and underwent an urban transition, then population growth rates began to fall and have approached a stability among European Americans. On the other hand, we see that there are new immigrant groups in American society, and these new immigrant groups are having much higher reproduction rates. For instance, a recent update to the 2000 census suggested that almost the majority of all children born in the United States in recent years have been to Hispanic Americans, who themselves constitute only a little more than 10% of the population. Understanding these different cultural impacts upon reproduction are some of the applications of anthropology. Anthropologist Robbie Davis Floyd has examined a variety of issues surrounding reproductive rights, and in particular, the use of midwives. One of the things that she has pointed out is that although midwife practices have been well established as effective means of supporting the birth experience for women, they have suffered under political oppression in the United States and in most states have been criminalized or outlawed. Uh, Robbie has worked with a variety of midwife groups as well as state legislatures in order to change the legal atmosphere surrounding the use of midwives, enhancing the opportunities that women have to uh, engage in the birth process in ways that they feel more comfortable with. Anthropology has also been engaged in other kinds of political debates and conflicts around uh, birth control methods, some of these involving what we call genital surgery, uh, and in particular, things such as uh, infibulation, sometimes referred to as female circumcision, uh, in a variety of areas of the world, particularly those still under uh, Muslim in Islamic influence, there are long-standing practices of women having the external labia uh, excised either in early childhood or approaching adolescence, and the resulting wounds closed over uh, and a protective shield, so to speak, formed around the vagina. Uh, one of the explicit reasons for doing this is that it is thought to restrict female sexual desire uh, as well as to make uh, intercourse less interesting. It's viewed as a kind of practice in which men manage to gain control over women and their sexuality. However, in parts of the world where it's practiced, women also endorse these practices and often see them as being uh, central to the definition of what is an adult woman. 
in this context, we find a variety of conflicts between cultural traditions which endorse these practices and notions of international rights and human rights in which this is viewed as a violation of the human body and of female rights in particular. When we examine some of these conflicts, we find interesting dynamics of different notions about what's appropriate. Should individuals be able to decide what happens to their body? Uh, should the collective make decisions about, for instance, whether or not female circumcision is practiced? And what should that collective be? The woman's family, her village, her lineage, her country, or some international human rights organization who views this as an unacceptable uh, violation of women's uh, integrity and their body rights. So anthropologists have engaged in some of these uh, troublesome and problematic questions about how it is that cultures come to control fertility, sexuality, often using what some of us would view as very uh, brutal methods of doing so. However, we've also been uh, forced to recognize that our concerns about sexual surgery are also very cultural. In our society, if someone wants to excise the external labia of a female infant, uh, this is a crime. Uh, on the other hand, if you want to uh, excise the uh, external foreskin of your young son, well, this is just viewed as a medical procedure. Although many would contend that it's really an ancient cultural and religious practice that has little, if any, medical grounds or foundation. And uh, this once again points out how culture dramatically shapes the way that we view sex, sexuality, and sexually related behaviors. When we turn to sex and sexuality, uh, humans stand in a relatively unique place in the animal kingdom. So once again, it's by comparing our own behaviors to those of other animals that we start to understand what is uniquely human and some of the reasons why human cultures engage in such elaborate practices surrounding important issues such as sex. When we look at what's typical in most animals, sex is largely or even strictly a reproductive function, at least insofar as females are concerned. Uh, females in most animal species only have sex when they're in estrus, when they're ovulating. And most animal species uh, have females engaged in a swelling response in which their um, vaginal areas become extended and protruded out and obviously indicating that they're in a receptive mode for sexual interaction. Now sex is also used as a dominance behavior, although it's really more the sexual mounting rather than any penetration, but male-male uh, sexual behavior, so to speak, in the animal species often has nothing to do with homosexuality and really is a dominance uh, position or statement. There are some interesting exceptions in the animal world, however. And the bonobo, one of the chimpanzee species, is one of the outstanding exceptions to the generalizations about animal patterns of sexual behavior. Uh, the bonobo has what's been referred to as a constant swelling. Uh, the female's genital area is constantly protruded and enlarged uh, in a way that is typical for estrus and the females of other species. But the bonobo is constantly in this display state, and the bonobo species is characterized as having almost constant sex with many different partners, um, uh, all kinds of sexual behaviors, even among members of the so-called same family. Sex is viewed as a kind of 
tension release. And it's explicitly used as a kind of alliance building and uh, making up phenomena. For instance, even female bonobos will engage in genital to genital rubbing as a way of making up after they've had a fight. So what's important to take from this is one, that sex is basically a reproductive function, not an entertainment or enjoyment function in most animal species. But in the other animal species most closely related to human beings, we find this exaggerated use of sexual behavior. So these differences suggest that in human beings, we have a primary focus on the secondary rewards, the enjoyment that comes from sex, rather than the biological functions or reproductive needs. And human female sexuality is very unusual in the broader context of animal sexual behavior. Females are characterized as having a non-seasonal sexuality, which means that they are receptive to sexual behavior outside of estrus, uh, which is basically what nature initially intended sex for, for reproduction. So this has led anthropologists to speculate on this relatively unique phenomena in the human female. Why is the human female so different from other animal species in her sexual receptivity? And the general response is that this is a consequence of evolution. There was something adaptive about females being available more often. And the broad reason is that it enhanced bonding with males. It kept males around females to protect them, provide them with food, provide their offspring with food, and to uh, give them the opportunity to have an enhanced protection uh, across time. Of course, this also presents some interesting problems. When we look at animal behavior, one of the primary things that animals fight about is sex. Male-male conflict and aggression is primarily over access to females that are in estrus. So we know that sex is a very you know, divisive uh, activity in animal societies. And it raises the question of, if this is such a uh, disruptive influence, why did it evolve as an extreme in human behavior? Uh, it obviously required that humans develop other ways of controlling this highly volatile human tendency. So when we look at the institutions of marriage, we'll see that one of the responses of uh, human culture to these enhanced sexual proclivities of human nature was to find ways to control and regulate this sexual behavior in ways that help minimize conflict and discord uh, within the human culture. When we look at the relationship between culture and sexual behavior, uh, we find not only some broad universals, uh, but some very important cultural differences. In terms of the broad universals, we say all cultures take efforts to control sex, to limit who you have sex with, to control when and where you have sex with others. However, we also find that in many cultures, there are very different ideas about when is it appropriate to have sex? What may be universal to all humans is the idea that sex should take place in privacy and seclusion, uh, and either in secretive ways or in ways that are ignored by others. Perhaps you've 
laid in bed and pretended you're asleep while your roommate has sex with their significant other. We normally don't pay attention to other people having sex uh, because it's part of this adaptive behavior within humans in order to avoid conflicts. We also note that cultures have a variety of ideas about abstinence and control of sexual behavior. And it is probably a human universal that there are always times when sex is considered to be inappropriate. Uh, before rituals, perhaps, perhaps before marriage, as we'll see with the incest taboos with certain people. Culture always exerts some control over human sexual behavior. Premarital sex in cross-cultural perspectives uh, also illustrates dramatic variations in how culture responds to this urge. Is sex something that you should save for marriage? Or is sex something that you use in order to get a good marriage? Some cultures encourage people from childhood on to have sex with appropriate partners. Others view virgin marriages as important and even have tests to make sure that the uh, bride is a virgin on her marriage day. However, in contrast to our current societal concern about adolescent pregnancy, what we find typical in cultures around the world is that by the time females enter into the adolescent period, uh, they normally get pregnant and have children. In some cases, this is delayed till late adolescence, uh, in part because of marriage rules or because a diet may uh, restrict ovulation until adequate development has occurred. Uh, but on the other hand, we also find societies in which early initiation of sexual behavior is thought to be normal. One of the examples widely cited in the anthropological literature is that of the Trobriand Islanders, where sexual behavior was encouraged among young people. Uh, it was viewed not only as a way of uh, letting people know how good you were, what a good lover you would be, uh, but was viewed perhaps more broadly as a kind of a social negotiation strategy, a way of exerting influence and control in relationship to others. Uh, but it was also viewed as an opportunity for experimentation. And during an adolescent period, a young woman sleeping around with a number of boys was not viewed as immoral or somehow unacceptable. However, when she found the boy that she thought she wanted to marry, well, she was encouraged to then just sleep with him. And ultimately, her mother may approve and lead the way to a marriage. Of course, in other cultures, we find very different attitudes. Uh, not only the classic scarlet letter of the American past, uh, but cultures in which stoning of women who have sex outside of marriage was considered to be a cultural norm, uh, or other cultures in which practice like the infibulation or the uh, so-called female circumcision uh, was practiced with the explicit recognition that by removing the clitoris, uh, females become less interested in sex and are less likely to have sexual relations. So cultures vary widely in terms of just what they view as being appropriate. Humans also have different ideas about you know, what kind of person do you want to marry. However, we also tend to have certain kinds of preferences that reflect certain aspects of our animal heritage. Uh, among primates, in general, what we find is that uh, females, when they are receptive, have a lot of uh, discretion in terms of which males they will have sex with. Uh, males often fight for that right, 
uh, but females often have the right to accept or reject their suitors. Of course, we also find in the animal kingdom violence and abuse and rape of females by dominant males. Uh, so there are a variety of different patterns. Uh, we also find very different ways in which females are linked to males, perhaps exemplified in their extremes by the gorilla harem, where one dominant silverback male controls a number of females and excludes the other males from the group, uh, to some of the chimpanzee behaviors that we might say free love, where male chimpanzees will actually line up and wait patiently for their turn to have sex with an, uh, an female who is an estrus. But what we note is one of the primary factors across most primate species is that there's lots of male-male competition to decide who is going to be dominant, who will have preferential access to females, if not exclusive access, at least uh, predominant access during the periods of time when the female is in estrus. We find that there's also some cross-cultural patterns or preferences in humans in terms of what kind of mate do they want. In general, what we find cross-culturally is that males prefer younger females. If you're a guy, you might ask yourself, who would you rather date, a woman a couple years older than you or a woman a couple years younger than you? At your age, you may have a little ambivalence about it, but as men get older, they prefer younger females, and the contention is that this reflects the higher reproductive potential of younger females. They'll be able to produce offspring for more years and provide a greater opportunity for the male to pass their genes on to the next generation. Cross-culturally, there also tends to be a preference for women preferring older men as their spouses, particularly men with resources and higher status. We see this as part of a general set of differences in male and female reproductive patterns. Cross-culturally, males tend to be more promiscuous, and this is thought to reflect the fact that males have very little investment in terms of a pregnancy. They give up perhaps a few million sperm that they can quickly replace. Females, on the other hand, cross-culturally, are more likely to play hard to get, be more selective about reproduction. Why? Well, from a biological point of view, a female who gets pregnant now has a major commitment, not only of a nine-month pregnancy, but because of the mammalian bonding, she's likely to feel deeply tied to this infant for many years, if not most of her life. So she gets both a physical and emotional investment as a potential outcome of sex. Males tend to be very concerned about controlling and keeping uh, some kind of limitation on female behaviors, what's called mate hoarding and particularly when females are in their estrus or reproductive periods. Once again, this is thought to reflect male investment. If you're going to be with this woman and take care of her for the rest of her life, you want to make sure that the offspring that she bears are your own and not somebody else's. So males become very concerned about the uh, potential extramarital activities that females may engage in. Indeed, later we'll see that there are uh, important cultural differences in terms of what males uh, versus females are thought to do as acceptable extramarital behavior. 
So because of the importance of sexual behavior in the human species, we have a variety of different practices to restrict and control the sexual impulse. The famous psychologist Sigmund Freud thought that one of the basic functions of human society was to subordinate and control human drives, including sex. And that control of the sexual drive uh, was one of the most important things that social institutions imposed on the individual. When we look at extramarital relations in cross-cultural perspective, uh, we do, however, see that they are often quite frequent, that perhaps in more than half of the world cultures, it's widely admitted that extramarital sexual relations occur. From an evolutionary point of view, it's advantageous for both males and females to do this. Males spread their seed more widely. Females enhance their opportunity to bring uh, superior genes from superior mates uh, into their own descendants. However, we also see that there is a double standard here. It appears more likely that men than women have extramarital affairs. And there is, in general, a very powerful double standard that, that exists in cultures. In about half of world cultures, it's thought to be okay, at least among men, that males have extramarital affairs. However, very few cultures accept this for women. And in general, when women engage in these extramarital affairs, they are thought to be inappropriately engaged in behavior and are often punished quite severely for their extramarital activities. When we think about love and sex, uh, we often view this as a result of a kind of romantic impulse. And romantic love is an important phenomena uh, recognized in the vast majority, if not all, cultures of the world. However, in most cases, romantic love is not viewed as something that is the basis for marriage. Uh, in most cultures, romantic love is viewed as a kind of distraction from the more important social and economic bonds that are formed through marriages in most cultures known to anthropology. We do, however, recognize that this romantic love is very compelling, it leads people into very dangerous behaviors, leads us to powerful infatuations and obsessions, a very strong attachments to other people, and even produces this you know, ecstasy of love and the torment of love rejected. Why do humans have these powerful romantic dynamics? It's suggested that there may be biological bases for this and that the whole romantic love phenomenon may have originated in a relatively unique human behavior, the face-to-face -face engagement in sexual activities. But this sense of being swept away romantically in love with someone else has been analyzed as something that reflects certain kinds of chemicals and hormones in our body. This feeling of being ecstatically in love and obsessed with somebody else has been linked to a particular chemical, phenylethylamine, which is an amphetamine-like substance, uh, and other substances such as dopamine and norepinephrine, which function as pleasure drugs and stimulant drugs in our body. And these substances are thought to produce the lover's high, the giddy feeling, the silly grin that one gets being ecstatically in love with someone else. However, these are relatively short-lived effects, and most of them um, sort of end within a few years of a relationship. 
And this contributes to what has been recognized as the uh, four-year itch, where marriages often find difficulties after about four years. That ecstatic high of being in love with someone is no longer there. However, if relationships persist, they tend to be based upon a new set of chemical dynamics in our body. Uh, those related to the endorphins, and in particular, uh, oxytocin, which has been called the, uh, the mother's love hormone, because it's what mothers release during breastfeeding, and it's what helps bond them to their babies. And it's also an important part of bonding between uh, males and females in the species. Homosexual behavior is something that is viewed in very different light from one culture to another. Like other aspects of human behavior, we find important precedents for human sexual behavior in the behavior of other animals. Uh, in most animal species, however, homosexual behavior is predominantly a male-male pattern, something that we also find reflected in the human species. Uh, we did point out the exception among the bonobo chimps where females do engage in homosexual behavior as part of alliance building, friendly engagement, making up after fights. But in general, what we find cross-culturally is that homosexuality is primarily part of male sexuality, and it may take many different forms. However, one of the dominant forms has to do with uh, young males being homosexuals during the sub-adult phase of their life, when they're undergoing initiation into adulthood. And this has been referred to as institutionalized homosexuality. Um, Gilbert Hurt studied this among people in New Guinea, where he found that all young men went through a period of being uh, homosexuals in the sense that they were expected to perform fellatio, blowjobs on the older men. This was viewed as giving them men's power, embodied in the semen, and making them strong. There was very strong prohibitions on having sex with women, which was thought to weaken these young men who were striving to become warriors. Once they entered the warrior grade, however, they were expected to leave behind their homosexual behaviors uh, in terms of performing fellatio, although as warriors they may receive fellatio from the next generation of young men. But most of their sexual energies as adult men then focused on acquiring wives and engaging in normal heterosexual behavior. So in this group, homosexual behavior was sort of viewed as a phase of life that all males went through. When we look at homosexuality cross-culturally, there's a wide variety of norms regarding this form of behavior. Not only is it openly accepted in some cultures, uh, but in some cases, homosexual behavior is viewed more along the line of being a uh, super male rather than an effeminate male. Of course, in other cultures, homosexuality is viewed more in effeminate forms, and indeed in some, Male homosexuals are expected to take on transvestite behaviors, including the task and mannerisms and dress and adornment of females. Cultures' differences in their tolerance of homosexuality uh, is not just a simple function of general attitudes towards sexuality. Some cross-cultural research suggests that some of the major differences in cultural attitudes about homosexuality have to do with whether or not there is a need for the population to grow, 
or the population is already outstripping its resources. This is suggested by correlations between acceptance of homosexuality and the acceptance of abortion and infanticide in cultures. So while we can understand homosexuality as part of our animal heritage, and while we can also see male homosexuality as a reflection of the male increased sexual drive and the increased proclivity to sex found in males of most species, what we primarily note is that culture is a primary determinant in shaping our attitudes towards these impulses and may also be the primary determinant in shaping individuals towards uh, homosexual versus heterosexual ideals for their own development. 